0: Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasir Pasha and Matt Stombe.
1: All right. Welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. This is Nasser Pasha. And this is Matt Staub. And this is where we cover business in the news with our legal twist and also answer some of your business legal questions that you, the listener and business owner, can send in to ask at Legally Sound Smart Business dot. Did we get the dot com for that? We, I think we got everyone. So dot com, dot net, dot org, dot pizza, dot pizza. <laughs> Have those come out yet? I don't know if those subdomains or those domains have come out yet, but we're definitely getting Pizza when it comes out, unless one of our (laughs) listeners takes it from us and (laughs) extorts us.
2: It's most likely already taken because that would be a very popular name that uh, (laughs) people want to have. Especially for a pizza joint, it'd be perfect for them. There's an old, this is still when the internet was kind of up and coming. Everyone was on the internet at this point, but people still didn't understand. There's a very old, um, not very old, but like, 15 years, maybe 10 to 15 years, somewhere in that range, SNL commercial where they, I'm not going to say what the website they say on the show. You can go look it up because it's probably not appropriate, but it's uh, okay. It's it's pretty funny for, it's basically making fun of the fact that every URL is taken already. And this
1: was, you know, at least 10 years ago. So it's pretty interesting. It's true. Pretty much every dictionary word is done for .dot .coms. And then pretty much every dictionary word with another dictionary word seems to be taken. Yeah. It's slim pickings now, but that's why they came up with these other domains. I mean, we we have clients, right? We have clients that have alternative domain names, and we have a lot of startup companies that use alternative domain names, whether it's .co or .whatever, you know. And and so it's it's becoming more popular and understandable. Yeah. Well, enough of that. Let's get into the story we have for today, and it's
2: actually. I assumed that everyone had heard of this, but I was just talking with people yesterday and
1: not everyone was aware. How could they not? I've gotten like five or six emails about this heartbleed vulnerability, and I'm surprised people haven't heard about it yet.
2: Yeah, so for those that I guess haven't, yeah, there's this new security flaw that came out, or when was this, last week? At least that's when we got the emails, I think.
1: Yeah. What's weird is that I think the internet community found out about it one day and then it just started populating after that. And then we also found out that the U.S. government knew about it before it was published or released and so forth. And this security flaw is huge. It's basically that encrypted connection that you have with these websites. Yeah, all that information that's passing by, in theory, I guess, some of these people can get that information, including passwords, credit card information, or whatever. And with that, goes on to the next level.
2: Right. And we're going to kind of approach it from the small business perspective. But yeah, it, essentially, it did infiltrate all these big websites and a lot of private information. So it's all the personal data that might have been stored by these. They mentioned some of the ones that were affected Like Dropbox, for example, that's a pretty big company. And I think there was a lot of precautionary things that people were taking. I'm trying to remember which site sent me emails, but I thought it
1: was Google. They keep saying, you know, change your Google password, things of that nature. But I didn't get anything from Google, but I, I got two types of emails. One email was saying, okay, change your password. And then another email saying, you don't have to do anything. We're not affected, you know, because I think everyone was kind of scared about all this. So they were just being precautionary.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it is more precautionary stuff. But we want to talk about how this does affect small businesses.
1: I think there's a few ways, like a lot of businesses work with private sensitive data. And whether you're storing it on your servers or someone else is storing it on you, like, for example, Dropbox, right? If you're storing confidential information on there, and you have a fiduciary duty or ethical duty, whether, I don't know, whether you're an accountant or dealing with medical information in compliance with HIPAA or whatever, I think at the least you have an ethical obligation to change your password, right? And if you don't do that, and then your data is later stolen, then you can't claim that someone else is responsible because you were forewarned beforehand. That's probably
2: my biggest concern is if you have client data and you have a security breach with your own business, then you're in a lot of trouble. We just passed tax season, but I know that in the past, what people have done is steal personal data from CPAs, tax preparers, et cetera, and then file fake tax returns, get those refunds. And then when those real people try to go file their tax returns with that social security number, if you e-file it or if you send it in, they say, hey, no, we already have a return in for that social security number. Wow. Yeah.
1: It's a problem. <laughs> That's a big deal. And actually, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I think maybe some of the professionals out there know, but if you do have a security breach, the standard is pretty low. Basically, if you find out, or if you have even reason to know that it might be a possibility because someone hacked into your system, you have an obligation legally to inform your customers, usually in writing within a certain period of days, it's state by state, to let them know that there might be a security breach. And as consumers, we've gotten these before whether it's from Adobe or from Target saying that our servers have been hacked and your credit card might be stolen or information or or what have you. And they may specify what is available to them. But that's actually a law that was started in California. And now, I don't know how many states, but many other states have adopted. I know Texas has. I know New York has as well, and has pretty much adopted California's model of what they call security breach notification.
2: Yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind. And of course, put as many precautions as you can in there to to protect what you have because the money and small amount of time spent protecting is gonna save a ton of time down the road if there's any sort of breach. And money too if you don't have any
1: insurance, I suppose. So especially small businesses too, because it could be a big hit. One thing that I noticed is that even though this seemed like a huge security flaw, it seemed like it was a pretty quick easy fix i mean i got emails saying that they fixed it within 24 hours and i even talked to one of my clients this week they're an it consulting firm and so they handle some of the servers and so forth and they didn't have to deal with any really security breaches they just had to apply a patch and that's it pretty much and everything seemed to be fixed and no longer vulnerable and i guess that's computers for you (laughs) that computer stuff yes it's computers for you All right, let's get to our question for the day.
2: How do I know whether my employee is exempt or not? And this comes from someone in Roseville, California.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Listen to our previous 50 episodes about this subject. See, I lumped this in with independent contractor versus employee stuff. So maybe this is a little different, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure we've really... We've definitely talked about this topic before, but not maybe in depth. So... First of all, we don't need to discuss the employee versus independent contractor thing. We get that, hopefully. No, we don't. (laughs) So, we're talking about employees here, and they can be classified as exempt or not exempt. And, you know, the big thing is whether they're exempt from essentially, you know, overtime pay. That's a big
1: concern with that. That's a good distinction to make because. When people say exempt versus non-exempt, what they're referring to is exempt to certain labor laws. And by the way, if you're an exempt employee, you may not be exempt to everything, just certain things. But I think the main thing is over time and is the main focus when it comes to this kind of classification. So what's the answer here? How do you determine? What's the difference?
2: Let's say, I guess you got to look at a few things. You know, you look at first things first, I guess, title. I want to be so concerned with what your title is, or I guess talking from the employer's perspective, yeah. the titles that you give your employees because titles can be anything. Me personally, I'm not very big on titles of of any job position unless it's CEO because no. I know what that is. So you know, you look at what they're doing. We're talking administrative work, executive work, other professional employees, outside salespeople, computer employees too can be classified. So that's one kind of step in the right direction of trying to determine whether they're exempt or not.
1: Let's take a step back. And if you look conceptual, it kind of goes to the same independent contractor employee discussion is that if you have a lot of control over your employee and more control over the personnel, they're more likely to be an employee. But same way, if you have more control over your employee, then they're more likely to be non-exempt versus exempt. And the idea is, again, we've talked about this in the past. If they're given a certain amount of independence, then they, in theory, have the ability to decide on their own when they work and how they work and have more freedom as to these overtime issues, right? So that's the general concept. But understand that California has pretty rigorous steps and criteria on who is exempt a little bit more strict than the federal standard. The federal standard is pretty much the concept of, you know, having a managerial position and so forth, but California makes a few specific distinctions. There's one called the executive exemption and the administrative exemption, which I think are pretty obvious. But then there's also even the professional exemption, like an attorney or, or a doctor. But then there's all these subcategories, and, and Matt mentioned them the computer professional and salesperson, outside salesperson. And these have specific criteria you have to follow. And it's kind of hard to go into detail at this point, but if you're thinking about classifying one of your employees in this manner, I would consult an attorney in that regard. But then beyond all of this, there's also a salary test. And basically, in California, exempt employees must also meet a certain amount of salary per pay period to be considered exempt. So a lot of times I've seen where someone's a so-called manager, but then they're being paid minimum wage. That just doesn't work.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. think like you're alluding to it's it's the same sort of thing with employees versus independent contractors. This isn't something that can be explained in a couple sentences, but we went over the different types of exemptions and the salary requirement too. So, probably about the best like, someone can hope for, I suppose, in terms of getting a brief summary of the
1: difference between the two or trying to determine which they are. And by the way, uh, the minimum salary requirement is it has to be no less than 2 times the state minimum wage. So, California is at eight dollars an hour right now. It's going up to what nine twenty-five or something this July. I think just nine even. Nine even, yeah. So whatever it will be, so no less than two times the statement of wage for that monthly salary for what would be a full time employment. So you take the forty hour work week and calculate as follows. I don't know the exact calculation, but it should be around twenty seven hundred per month. So. It's not too bad. I think most people in that exempt position would probably fall under that. I mean, in the sense that if they are truly exempt, they're probably being paid at least that amount of money. I guess for $9 an hour, how much is that going to be? So nine. So I have 3,100, 3120 to be exact per yeah. month. So that's what it's going to go up to. And that might affect that because I can see a lot of exempt employees being in that range between 2,700 and 3,100 per month. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a good math podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully that answers that question. It's kind of a general question. How do you determine between exempt or non-exempt? It's a tough question. Just like the independent contractor employee question is if you think you're on the borderline do not take the chance. It's the same issue because worst case scenario is that you have a misclassified employee that's really non-exempt and they're working overtime. They're missing lunches. They're doing this and that. And you'll end up having to pay back those past wages plus penalties. It's not a fun process to go through.
2: Exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I probably
1: could have, but (laughs) yeah, with a little practice, you did a good job. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, that's our episode. We'll end on a good note with a compliment from Matt saying how perfect I am. <laughs> uh, Yeah,
2: and as always, keep it sound and keep it smart.
0: This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasir Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney.